Turn to the book of 1 Peter. Turn to the book of 1 Peter. We are in 1 Peter. We might be here for the next 10 years. Um, I'm having fun, and hopefully you'll, you're reading through 1 Peter during the week. Uh, the, the greatest thing that I, could, I think could come out of this series would be that during the week when you're alone by yourself, that you're opening up your Bible and you're able to read the book of 1 Peter and have it impact you in that manner. And so I just encourage you to keep reading it. Um, and then if you've got a cool story that goes with that, please come let me know. I'd love to hear it. But we're in First Peter, and the last couple of weeks we've been in the end, of, uh, the end of chapter 1, and the basic idea, the basic premise was we need to be strange. We need to be different. Um, we need to be strangers in this world, uh, which basically flowed into this idea of being born again, where you're radically, your life is just radically different. You're, you're hardwired different, and, and it shows, and your desires are different, your heart's different. And you're a stranger here. You don't look like everybody else. And the big point of that was to say, if you remember, we talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and if you didn't get a copy of that first chapter, I think we still have some copies at the book table. But we talked about Bonhoeffer and this distinction between cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace and costly grace. And cheap grace is kind of the grace of our age where we have our life and we just... We just add one little thing on to it, which is um, Jesus or Christianity or religion, and it's just one of a myriad of things that we just glob onto our life that revolves around us at the center. And costly grace was true grace. It was the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace that cost him his life, the grace that costs us everything when we go and receive it. And the whole paradigm here is it's not one little thing that gets added. It's me choosing to die to myself and be kind of, in a sense, born again to where it's, I'm not at the center anymore. Christ is at the center, and everything in my life revolves around him. Completely different outcome from cheap grace. Completely different outcome. And so I think even our, our language needs to reflect that. The I accepted Jesus into my heart language is recent language in the last couple hundred years. Um, Paul's language was a Greek phrase, en Christos, which meant in Christ. And I think it fits a lot better that we are tucked up into Christ who is the head, who is our covering, who is our leader, who is our Lord, and we follow him and we submit to him. And so I think even our language needs to begin to try and aim at the direction of truth, which is uh, we are nothing and he is everything and that's where we get it all right. Okay, so that's just basically a little bit of the premise. And we get to chapter 2, and here's how it begins. So if you read with me right at the beginning of chapter 2, it says this, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and of all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. And like newborn babies, and if you haven't noticed, there's like a crazy baby boom going on at Antioch. Um, crazy, like, baby boom going on. <laughs> Um, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And this morning's message in some sense is just going to be a footnote or an asterisk. We're going to kind of pause and step out of First Peter and try and get a big picture view that I think is hugely important 
and we would, we would easily miss it if we don't stop and kind of look at it. And it keys off of this word, therefore. It keys off of the word, therefore. And this is kind of the sentence structure. You've got something preceding the therefore. You've got the word, therefore, comma, and then what follows, which is essentially, be good. Now, I know a lot of you probably can't see that, but if you just imagine perfect handwriting, you'll get the picture. <laughs> um, blank, therefore, be good. Blank, therefore, be good. Be good. Go be good. I think the message we get as Christians is be good. Um, don't go and be bad. Don't go and sin. Don't look at that. Don't touch that. Don't taste that. Don't be like that person. Don't fall into that camp. Don't believe those things. Um, don't watch those shows. And the list will go on forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, don't go to that restaurant. Don't, I don't know. I don't, that one really doesn't make sense, does it? Um, anyways, be good with a lot of don'ts and kind of, kind of framing that in. That's Christianity. Work hard at being good. Labor at being good. And we struggle with it. We don't own it. We, we're trying with duty to follow these rules and these regulations, and it's just exhausting. And like, man, it's hard to keep up with all this. And, but I've got to because I'm falling behind the curve. I fall short of this line or this mark. So I've got to keep expending energy to be perfect. And then when life gets difficult, I have even less energy to spend. So I kind of fall further and further behind. And it's like the, the guy running to catch up with the train. You know, and the longer he runs, the slower he gets because he, he's losing energy. And the faster the train gets and it begins to separate. And we just get beat down and exhausted. And so then at that point... We're just going to leave it in the camp of I'll just go to church because I can at least do that. I mean, I can at least just get up and just be there. But man, I'm, I'm flat exhausted. I've run out of gas because it's all about being good and, and it's just hard and life's messy and it's tough. And what we lose is this word right here which, that says, therefore. Which means what drives the whole being good is something that preceded it. It's, it's something here that leads us into the ability and the motivation to being good. And so this whole bit about being born again and, and the costliness of the salvation that was purchased for us. Remember last week we talked about being ransomed out of slavery in a sense. This costly grace that has purchased us out all of these things about the identity of who we are now then drive our ability to go and be good. See, it has to do with desire, and, and I'll just tip you off. The, the middle school group is with us today, and um, Evan and Lindsay don't have any friends. Um, must be short a few middle schoolers. Uh, and uh, they have a hot word. So when they come into the service, they have a hot word, and they have to listen for it. And the word is desire, 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 desire. Um, and uh, and they, they have to track how many times it's said, and the one that gets it exactly right gets like a prize. So if you want to compete with your middle schooler, um, or if you're just a grown-up middle schooler, um, you can track the word desire. Um, desire, desire. 
<laughs> this morning. Um, but it has to do with our desires, because you've got to understand something. Desire, the gut level stuff, that's like the track that we run on. You go to Disneyland and you've got those cars that are kind of on that track. And, you know, you can steer a little bit and all this other stuff, but you're pretty much going where the track is. And ultimately, our desires are the ball game. The Bible talks about out of the heart, kind of everything flows, and that's, that's the center and it's the core, and it dictates everything. It's the track on which we run. And we know that because we analyze our desires and we fight with our desires, and we're like, I don't want to do the things that I'm doing, but sooner or later, like, my desires kind of went out and stuff like that. And we know that we're pulled in the direction of our desires. And as an aside to that, it's, it's why we value art at Antioch. It's why we value art. Because there's a strange phenomenon. Art is powerful. Art is ridiculously powerful. And so it can be used to take your desires and magnify um, a, a wrong kind of direction for those desires. And so Christians of different generations have seen the power of arts. And so then they want to repress it. We want to like squelch it because it's powerful and it has the ability to lead people in a wrong way. And it's just like... Um, why not use it to lead people in the right way? Isn't that kind of what God did? Like in the book of Psalms when it talks about the beauty and about creation and it says, look at all this marvelous stuff going on and the stars and all these other things and then see that and know that your God is big and powerful and good. And the psalmist uses beauty and nature and things like that, the created world, to point us to God. And so why not use art to inflame the right kind of desires? To, to, to stir those passions within us. And so it's why art's really important, because desires are important, and art speaks to those things. But desire is the ballgame. It's the ballgame. C.S. Lewis says this, and I think it kind of helps frame it for us in relation to where we're going. He says there's two kinds of love in this world. There's gift love and need love. And he says need love is like a child that has to receive from the parent. And the gift love is like the parent giving to the child. And he says, everything in some sense like, can be cashed out in that language between the need and the gift. And so we go through life and we give to our friends, we take from our friends, and there's, there's a give and a take to love. And so when all of a sudden God gives us love because we have a need there, this costly grace, how do we react, how do we respond Need love doesn't give back. Gift love gives back, right? But gift love, according to Lewis, is always meeting a need. So he's like, it's really an awkward thing. How do we give love back to God? Because God is all sufficient. He doesn't need anything from us. In the, in the Minor Prophets, he talks about the sacrifices. And he's like, he, he's so perplexed. God is so perplexed with the Israelites because the sacrifices, they began to think that they were somehow doing something for God that he needed. Uh, the, the countries around Israel would actually do sacrifices, put food on an altar, and their thought was somehow that food ended up on the table of God, and they were actually giving back to him so that he would have food. And I think the Israelites, the idea is they started to begin to think like that, and so they're like giving to God by giving these sacrifices. They're doing him a favor, and God looks down and says, you guys, I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need those. 
There's a deeper symbolic value to you giving those things. The, the whole idea was that your heart in giving was supposed to be showing that you cared about me, that you appreciate what I'd done for you. I gave you 100%. You're going to give back to me 10%. And you're showing that you appreciate and recognize that all the good things came from me. You're not giving me anything back that I need. It's an object lesson for you to recognize and realize that I've given you all that you need. So what Lewis says, he says, we've got to come up with a new category of love, and he calls it appreciation love. Appreciation love. And I think the closest thing to this is Christmas. You know, you get a, an amazing gift, and if you said, oh, wow, this is a killer um, train set, uh, let me run to my room and get my checkbook. I'll cut you a check for it. It would be missing the whole point, wouldn't it? It's not, the point of the gift was so that you would be wowed and go, wow, that is so cool. I really appreciate the thought behind that. You heard me when I said that I really wanted a train set. Um, thank you. Thanksgiving and appreciation are cousins that way. And if we pay for it, it, it undoes the, the heart behind the gift. The, the person giving the train set didn't need the money. What they desired was your appreciation. God doesn't need our sacrifices. God desires that we get it and are filled with appreciation love. So this costly grace over here is supposed to get deep into us so that we're just, we're just awestruck by what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And we go, wow, I don't want anything else. I want to be found there. I want to be at his feet. I want to be doing what he's doing. That's, that's what it's all about. I'm really excited. I'm all in. All my chips are in. Therefore, I'm going to be good. I'm, I'm going to start trying to remove the things that are antithetical to, to the, the Christ life in me, the seed of faith that's going to grow. I'm going to try and get rid of like the negative emotions, envy and slander and deceit and hypocrisy. The, the things that are completely at odds with appreciation and gratitude and thanks. And, and I'm going to try and identify those and get them out because the dominant passion within me is appreciation for my God. Jonathan Edwards, the, the 17, uh, in the, he lived in the 1700s, so 18th century theologian, wrote a whole book, big fat book with the weirdest language that you ever not want to read. And the, the title of the book is Religious Affections. And this revival had broken out, the first great awakening, and, and he was really per perplexed, and he's like, how do I discern what is legitimate and what is illegitimate? What is actually the work of the Holy Spirit to where people are, are, are just coming to this realization of God and that seed gets planted in there and it just grows and it changes them. And the people that are just jumping on the bandwagon and, uh, and coming around because it's the latest, greatest thing. You know, who's the Cowboys fan that was there when they only won like one or two games a year versus the guy that goes and buys the jersey halfway through the Super Bowl season? And, and Edwards really wanted to get to the bottom of this. So he wrote this whole book called The Religious Affections. And what he meant by affections was our passions, the heart stuff, our desires. And he says, that's where we have to look to see what's genuine and if it really is a work of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life because that's going to start here and then grow and express itself outward. Does that make sense? 
And so I think we look at Christianity today and we're saying, be good, be good, be good, be good, be good, be good, be good. And, and we're like, man, it's just not working. Like people are just flaming out and getting exhausted and just quitting on this whole be good thing. It's not working. Why is it not working? And there's, there's a saying, if you haven't heard it, your system is designed to give you exactly the results you're getting. Your system is designed to give you exactly the results you're getting. If you hit a golf shot into the trees over there, if you've ever golfed, you look down at where you're aiming, guess where you're aiming? Right at the trees. The results you're getting are coming about because the system is designed to give you those results. And so we're getting these burned out, frustrated, beat down, perplexed Christians and we're wondering why, and the reason why is because we're not showing them Christ first so that they can be overwhelmed by grace so that it will fundamentally change the core of who they are so that out of that come religious affections and a genuine appreciation for God and what God is doing in their life and a desire to be good. So we've got it all wrong. The system is all wrong. And this is no small thing. And so, let's look at it just a little bit more here. Let's read it one more time. It says, Therefore, there was a word preached to you. If you believed it, it was like a seed. It says in chapter 1, that, that little seed gets planted in you. It's imperishable. It's eternal. It's living. It's active. It gets planted in you. And therefore, because of what's going on, because of what God's doing in your life, rid yourselves of heart stuff, malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Do you know why you envy? Do you know why we get jealous? Do you know why we have anger towards other people? Because other people steal what we think we need. Or they thwart us from getting what we desire. See, we're out there with self at the center and we're in a competitive world and that person just talked bad about me and that, that like ruined my reputation and my ability to get affirmation from people and it damaged me and now I have to go slander. Or that person's getting ahead and, and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm frustrated and so I want to either pull them back or I want to get things illegitimately so that I can compete well. But we, we're always trying to stuff ourselves with what we think we need and we're in this competitive world and all of kind of the ill will feelings, the not loving feelings come because we think we're lacking something. Do you get how these emotions come when we don't really fully accept and understand that God has met all of our needs in Christ Jesus? You cannot be good until you fundamentally realize the game is over, this, this get everything I need game is over. Until you realize it has been satisfied, your needs have been met, you are now loved, accepted, known, forgiven, and you have a future inheritance that nobody can touch, and you've got protection, and you've got a God who loves you. Until you realize the game is over, you've got what you needed, what you desired, now you can give and you can love. You don't have to keep trying to fight. Until you realize that, what are you going to do? You're going to be forced to keep fighting. 
And so what happens is we're told, be good, be good, be good. And we're like, man, I'm over here expending all this energy to try and be good. And you know what? Nice guys finish last. And so while I'm over here trying to be nice and finishing last, everyone else is getting ahead. And pretty soon it's like, man, I can't expend energy on this. I've got to go over here and compete lest I lose. It all flows together. It's all a puzzle that kind of has to have the pieces there. We have to understand there's an engine that drives our righteousness. And that engine has nothing to do with us and of ourselves. It's Christ and, and His grace coming into us as a, a seed that naturally will grow and produce the right kind of love, life. Righteousness, right with God, right living, right emotions, right desires. I, um, I knew a guy in uh, California named Dave Young, and Dave Young was a, a father of six kids. Um, <laughs> there's not, I don't know there's many families in Oregon with six kids, but there were in California. Um, and he would drive an hour, hour to two hours every morning with a commute. And he, I mean, the guy got up at 4.30 in the morning to do this commute, would drink like a pot of coffee, and it was just beating him up. It was absolutely killing him. So they got some inheritance money, he took the inheritance money, all their savings, quit his job, and he bought a printing company. Didn't know anything about printing, but it was like five minutes down the road. <laughs> um, bought this printing company, and had put all of his chips in on this printing company. He had six kids, six mouths to feed, all this other stuff. His whole life now depended on this printing company. Nobody had to tell him to learn how to be a good printer. He was motivated to be a good printer. And when Paul talks about being good all throughout his letters, and, and Peter, when he talks about being good all throughout his letters, you always see a thus or a therefore or something like that. And what they're saying is, I'm not telling you something you don't already know. It's, it's, it should match what's already in you. I'm just encouraging you. And what I would say is he's guiding the motivated you should already be motivated to be good and to show your appreciation to God, to show Him you really love Him. You're listening to Him. And you're trying to model and, and reflect your life after His principles because you value Him. You're already motivated that way, and, and so now they're going to guide you this way. No one had to tell Dave Young to work hard at being a good printer. And when you've put all your chips in on Christ and you're not going to compete in this little world anymore and you're going over here and you're like a Jesus freak and this is all you've got now. You've traded all your chips, sold your other business, used your inheritance to buy this one pearl of great price or this one treasure hidden in a field like Jesus talks about. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl and the guy goes and sells everything so he can buy this one thing. If you put all your, your eggs in this one basket, guess what? Um, no one should have to tell you to be good. You should already be motivated. You just need a little encouragement. So how do we be good? What does change us? How do we grow spiritually? I mean, those are pretty relevant questions, aren't they? I don't know about you, but um, you know, sometimes I go to bed at the end of the night and I feel like a failure. I'm like, man, I really hope my kids stay young, not because I like them young, but because I can fool them. <laughs> into thinking that I'm like more of a hero than I really am. And I'm just like, ah, I don't want my kids to realize that daddy's got chinks in his armor. You know? And so I don't know about you, but I'm still struggling to, to be better. And that's a relevant question. How do we grow and how do we be good? And I want you to turn 
to 2 Corinthians. This is important, so turn if, if you've got a Bible. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, if you've got a big, indelible marker, um, put a big box around this. If not, cut your finger, box it in blood. Um, whatever you've got to do. But I think this is huge for us in this day and age and where we're at and where our situation is. We'll pick it up in verse 4. It says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Okay, good beginning, right? That's where we're at. It's hard, it's foggy, it's misty for us to really see what's going on with God's glory in Christ Jesus, that he is desirable, that we would sell all to get that kingdom of heaven that he brought. Verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. He's not cheap, he's not small, he's not mamby-pamby. He's Lord and we preach ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You exist for Jesus' sake. We preach and tell others about God for his sake, not for ours. We were made for a purpose in this life. And that's to reflect the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. You're always going to be wondering, like, how come I feel so unfulfilled? How come this job doesn't do it for me? How come I'm just not happy? How come something's just not right? Until you realize that you were made, you were created for a purpose, to reflect the glory of God. Okay, we'll continue. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. A God that can just snap his fingers or speak a word, and out of a dark room, all of a sudden there's like light. I mean, bringing things out of nothing, ex nihilo, just out of nowhere. Okay, the God that has that kind of power. He made his light shine in our hearts. The God that has the power to make light come out of dark spoke into your heart and made light come out of nothing. Put a seed in there that wasn't in there at all. Implanted it in you. Helped you be born again. He's, he's powerful. And he's working miracles in your heart. And he made his light shine in our hearts. Why? To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The face is the representative thing, the thing that you look at. So God's glory and what he's doing and how we're supposed to reflect it back, we see that in the face of Jesus Christ. How do we be good? We grow um, by beholding the face of Jesus Christ. As we look into the face of Jesus Christ and see this whole gospel message playing itself out, God bringing light out of darkness so that we can reflect black, uh, back his glory, appreciate him as those who have received his grace, when we look at the face of Jesus Christ, we see that. We see that and we are affected by it. It changes us. Our religious affections, our desires, our are exposed to this and they change. How do you grow a seed? How do you grow a seed? I don't think there's anyone in this room that can do anything to grow a seed except for exposing it to the elements that God designed for that seed to grow. 
sunshine. How do we grow spiritually? We expose ourselves to the face of Jesus Christ and we see all that is in there, the whole, whole gospel message, and it begins to unlock us and to grow us and to nourish that seed. We don't grow ourselves. We put ourselves in a proximity to Christ and Christ grows us. John 15 says, He's the vine and we're the branches. So how does the branch grow? Nothing in and of itself. Only because of proximity. It's plugged into the vine. Does that make sense? So Justin and um, the band, they played like three hymns this morning, which is really cool. Um, so we're going to take a time out and we're going to sing another one of those hymns. Just because I want us to pause and I want us to sing and I want us to reflect on the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and begin to realize that when we sing, we're singing to a person. And we're singing about a person. And, and, and we're trying to expose ourselves through this art form to what's going on, or ought to be going on deep within our hearts, so that appreciation can come out and be manifest. Does that make sense? And hymns are a great way to do that. So the, the band's going to lead us in a hymn, and then we're going to come back up and we're going to finish the sermon. So. Oh, I need the 
Sunday school type questions where a teacher's trying to boil it down to people and he says these desires in you it's like there's a black dog and a white dog and the question is well which one you know fighting against each other the question is well which dog wins and the answer the Sunday school teacher answer is the one I feed and I think we have to understand that if you want to grow spiritually it's Nothing in and of ourselves other than taking us and putting us in proximity with our maker and being exposed to him and letting that grace change us from the inside out. What happened in the 80s and 90s, just a little church history, is everybody wanted this, be good. You know, and I'll be honest, why? why? What were our motives? <laughs> I think our motives are just because being good means I win. And we're competing, right? So everyone wanted to be good, and so the self-help industry just exploded, which is rows and rows and rows of books and things like that. And everybody liked it because it's very empowering. I mean, there's something great about reading a book that can actually help you or is giving you some advice and stuff like that. It's very empowering, so people got really excited. So the Christian church in the 80s and 90s came along and said, Wow! They're using self-help principles that aren't even biblical. We could do so much better of a job of self-help um, by just taking biblical principles and just giving them to people. And so preaching kind of became, by and large, about mining Scripture for principles of how to be good and then going to people and saying, here's how you be good. Here's this principle or three principles, or five steps, or ten ideas, or whatever. And our system is designed to give us exactly the results we're getting. And I think that was, a, on the surface, like a really cool idea. Here's a way the church can be relevant. Let's give people principles. As if somehow me giving my daughter scissors and, and a hammer and other tools is going to help her mature and grow. It's me spending time with her and discipling her that's going to mature and grow her. It's not just giving her tools. Does that make sense? And so it's one of those things that on the outside seem really good. I don't know if you remember 
in the in the 90s, the hypercolor T-shirts. I used to work at a clothing store, and we got these things in, and it was the latest rage, and it was the material that would change color, like the blue shirt would get pink in areas that were hot, and it was this really cool idea until you realized all the places that would get pink were the parts of your upper body you didn't want <laughs> to draw attention to. I mean, so it's like one of these things that just really on the outside looked like a really cool idea. And I think the self-help gospel on the outside maybe looked like it was a really cool idea, but what we did to people was we said, hey, you're radically selfish, so let me give you some of the things that you desire, and maybe you'll like me. And, and people didn't know what to do with this or felt like, boy, I've got the tools. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't desire to do it. I know the right answer here, but yet I don't want to heed it. And so we kind of left Christians in this real funk, not knowing where to go and depressed and tired and beat up and worn out. And so, you know, do I need to go outside the church to find something or maybe I'll just stop going? Because after a while I'm exhausted again and the train's getting further and further away. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, if you board the wrong train going the wrong direction, it does no good to run down the center of the aisle in the opposite way. And if we try to say we can fix people by leaving them in the center of their own little universe, well, we've got off on the wrong train. The first step is always, and Jesus made this abundantly clear when he preached his gospel, is that you lay down self first and get on the right train following him. If you ever have any chance or hope of these things coming about in your own life, We've got to get on the right train. And so I call it the Oprah sermon. Um, this, the Oprah sermon, the, the self-help kind of fluff thing that gives you tools but doesn't do anything with your desires. And if there's any one thing that I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it's like if people go to a church long enough, they always walk away with one thing. I always remember, you know that kind of a deal? So I started like, asking myself the question, like, gee, you know, what would be the one thing? Like, if, if there's any one thing that after someone was at Antioch for a couple years that they would carry with them through life, I think the one thing I would want is just this. It's not about me. If you can get that one thing, I think you're positioned pretty well to be able to follow Christ. And the proximity with him will change you and bring the joy. The kingdom of heaven is righteousness, peace, and joy. All the things we're looking for. God's gift love is going to give to us. And it's going to enable us and give us the ability to appreciate him back if we just get this one thing right, that life is not about me. It's not about me. So let's go ahead and pray, and, and we're going to sing one more song with the band. And just maybe this week or today or as we're singing the song, just realize that it's not the tools in your hand that's the ball game. It's what's in your gut right here, the religious affections and the desires. And the only way those are going to be shaped is when you look at Christ and realize that's a pretty big deal. Let's pray. Father, um, we make a mess of your good plans a lot. And I'm sure we will do it at this church. I'm sure I will do it. I'm sure others will do it. But I pray throughout all of it, that you would protect and guard one thing, and that's that Jesus Christ would reign supreme, that we would see his glory, that we would be affected by 
the costly grace that he purchased for us. Father, fill our hearts with appreciation and gratitude. Help us love you in a way that's going to fill us and not puff us up because we think we're giving something to you. Father, we thank you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen.